Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For better or worse, the Postal Service will replace its old local delivery trucks with a combination of gasoline and electric ones. It's a huge acquisition, nearly $10 billion. The program includes the acquisition of electric chargers, which require testing and evaluation. The USPS Office of Inspector General took a look, and here with what it found, Deputy Assistant IG Amanda Stafford. Ms. Stafford, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you for having me. And there's a lot of pieces to this acquisition. Uh, Tell us what you were focusing on specifically here. As you mentioned, about 66,000 of the vehicles that will be acquired will be battery electric. So in preparation for their arrival, the Postal Service first focused on charging station acquisition and infrastructure readiness. Successful charging station procurement, testing, and installation will ensure that the new vehicles can be charged and ready to use when they arrive. Specifically, we looked at the contracts related to the charging stations. We wanted to verify that the charging stations met the requirements laid out in the contractor's statement of work. And our objective was really one, to determine whether the Postal Service was effectively testing and monitoring the performance of the charging stations, and two, to evaluate whether they were providing perfective oversight over that storage of them as well. All right. And the contractor, is it the manufacturer of the vehicles, or is it a manufacturer of charging stations, or is it some kind of an integrator that makes sure that one is compatible with the other? Because that's a question. Right. The charging station manufacturers are different than the vehicle manufacturers. The Postal Service has three charging station suppliers providing different types of chargers. And the vehicles are produced by a different combination of providers, so they're not the same. So overall, we really concluded that it was prudent for the Postal Service to elect to test and monitor these commercially available charging stations. Um, They were going to be deploying up to 41,000 of them throughout the delivery network. And they used first article testing to really verify that they met the requirements laid out in the contract statements of work. While traditionally you don't need to do a first article test, it's not required for something that's already commercially available, but the Postal Service really wanted to go above and beyond to look at the interoperability and identify any performance issues. You probably didn't include this, but maybe you did. Are they running into a possible crazy complexity cost question if they have three different types of chargers and I'm presuming they have different plug styles, and having rented an electric car once, I'll never do it again because one plug doesn't go into that car and that car doesn't fit that plug. And could they have chaos when they have 10 trucks that need charging, but there's only six of the compatible plugs available or something? And like you know, that really wasn't in the scope of this particular audit, but obviously looking at all of the different types and looking at sort of monitoring their performance in the future would be something that would be great oversight for us to continue to keep tabs on. And when you mentioned first article testing, that's getting a sample and setting it up and seeing what it does? Exactly. They had a number, each of the manufacturers provide their different units and the postal service tested each. We actually went to uh, one of the sites and were there for the testing. Right. Okay. And what are some of the chief parameters that they're making sure that these things will do, because it's probably different from a home installation where maybe things are more controlled. Right. They were looking at sort of workmanship issues, software issues, hardware issues. Really, we found that any of the issues that were found during the testing were all corrected, and they were fully approved by the end of June. But yes, they're looking at different sort of, how does the charger physically work? Is it physically working as well as sort of the software issues themselves? 
We're speaking with Amanda Stafford. She's Deputy Assistant Inspector General of the U.S. Postal Service. And you found on that aspect of the acquisition they were pretty good in doing that first article testing to make sure the darn things would work and I presume hold up under rugged multiple-person use, which is always a problem for any kind of machinery. But there are some things they need to work on, you found, also. Yep. So they did a lot of things that went really well. There were some areas for improvement. We found that the Postal Service really needed to look at the management controls over the storage of the charging stations that were at the Material Distribution Center. Specifically, facilities management did not employ necessary physical safety measures to protect and deter theft of Postal Service assets. This is location there were thefts in the location where they were being stored. And we found that despite previous thefts, that some of the crucial remediation measures that were identified previously had not yet been implemented. So there was, again, a break-in uh, that happened again in May where that location was, and it resulted in additional losses to the Postal Service, including the theft of some of the charging station heads and as well as some IT equipment. Interesting. So these things are not like a parking meter where it's a steel unit that's in concrete. I mean, nobody steals parking meters, and they're out there all by themselves. These are a little bit more portable than that type of equipment. I would say that this was a central distribution center. So this is where they were going to be centrally storing those items to then disperse and then permanently install. So I think, you know, it was a prudent decision to have them placed in a location and have them available ahead of time. But at the same time, there was uh, some security, you know, safety measures. I imagine they're in high demand because... That's an expensive component relative to the vehicle, right? I mean, again, I don't know what they cost. I wouldn't say they're extremely expensive, and I don't want to opine as to sort of the cause of the theft. I think that there had been previous issues, and it may be completely unrelated. But that being said, you know, we just wanted to make sure that that facility was secure. But they don't give you the charger with the car, so to speak. That's a separate acquisition. (laughs) They're separate acquisitions, correct. (laughs) All right. So what were your recommendations then here? So we just have one recommendation, really, because of the insufficient safeguards, we recommended that the Postal Service take urgent action to finalize and implement the physical security plan for the assets stored at that materials distribution center. And by the way, is there one charger per vehicle? Is that part of the acquisition? Or would there be like, you know, I don't know, I'm making this up, six chargers for a given postal installation. And if there's 15 trucks there, They would just be rotated through the chargers or maybe all the trucks aren't there all at once anyway. Yes, you don't necessarily need a one-to-one ratio. You don't need one charger per uh, vehicle, no. And how big are these chargers that someone could carry one off? It's bigger than a computer charger, which you can fit in your pocket. They have various models, so I can't exactly say. But yes, you would not just carry one off into your pocket for sure. And like I said, they will be taking those chargers and installing them, you know, permanently, physically into the different locations where they'll have the electric vehicles located. So eventually they get screwed to the wall in some way or mounted in a way that you can't walk off with them. And and that was part of the reason why they had different types of manufacturers and different types of charging stations so that they could support, you know, the buildings already exist. So they have to make sure that the charging infrastructure fits within the confines of those buildings that they have. And do we know yet where the Postal Service plans to deploy them? I mean, there are some very large installations that are almost 24-hour operations, you know, like a small city mail center, you know, whereas some rural places or tiny post offices are closed and alone for a lot of the time during the day and would be more, I would say, subject to break-in or theft. I think the Postal Service definitely, as part of their electrification strategy, really thought through what 
locations made sense from a distance standpoint, you know, all the different variables that was part of their environmental supplemental that they created. So it was very much thought through, but they're still in the process of rolling it out. And I'm sure it's a dynamic process that could change over time as they assess needs and where they need to have them. It could vary and change. And will you be looking at the other parts of the acquisition, the vehicles themselves at some point? That's right for future work, for sure. Amanda Stafford is Deputy Assistant Inspector General of the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Deliver the Federal Drive to yourself. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs 
are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming 
the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us 
to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're uh, having known you now for seven or eight years um, and worked alongside you. uh, Your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.